listening to Labor and Love Radio. Believe it or not, I'm the B, a.k.a. Bill Morgan, bringing you your weekly labor magazine. Every day is Labor Day. This is the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else work for a <clears throat> work for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is where you live, you're on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. You're putting money in someone else's wallet. Good morning, everybody. It's a labor and love show, the first one of 2019. And here we are. We got a government that doesn't work. We got 800,000 people now who are either laid off or not getting paid, working without pay. The very definition of oppression. Let's see what we got lined up this week. Um, as usual, we got music of social significance, like that that you just heard, and we'll run those, run those down for you in a minute. U.S. Appeals Court nixes an Obama-era definition of a franchise. Hundreds of TSA agents have stopped showing up for work. These are people who are not getting paid. These are the people at the airport who uh, look through your garbage and run the run the sensor over your body to see what you got in your in your pockets. Solidarity pickets protest Canada post-strike ban. That nice liberal Trudeau guy has declared their strike illegal and jailed some of the leaders. Kaiser clinicians go on the offensive for patient access. And how Four Roses bourbon strikers fought off a two-tier definition. On the labor beat, what did the new Secretary of Labor do to help a sleazebag named Jeffrey Epstein, a girl molester? The axe fell. How were union? How much were unions hurt? Looking back at the Janus decision and its effect on the labor movement. And uh, food stamp facts. How about this? The uh, government is tied up in knots now about immigration. Just can't get a a deal on immigration 
immigration uh, kind of a phony issue, if you ask me. This sort of expresses it. <clears throat> Can I tell you a secret? I don't even care if they're undocumented immigrants in this country. I think it's a non-issue. Without social security numbers, they aren't privy to the welfare people claim they get. The vast majority of them are normal people trying to live a better life. The whole wall, deport the illegals bullshit is just the 1% convincing the working poor to blame another group of the working poor for the fact that they're all poor. Instead of realizing that the reason you're all poor, we're all poor, is because of income inequality. You don't see millionaires and billionaires out on the street begging. You don't see them going through life trying to make a little bit of money so they can survive. We're all poor because our wages are low. Our wages are not living wages, or they're barely living wages, or they're not wages enough so you can get ahead. Wage stagnation, resource price inflation. Please use your brains. The existence of another poor person is not why you're poor. It's because the people who control everything refuse to increase your wages. Now, we're always hearing that <clears throat> there are people who say, well, I'm just not that in politics. I was talking to somebody yesterday who said, I'm just not interested in politics. Well, your boss is interested in politics, and he's using all the influence he can to keep your wages low. And your insurance company is into politics, and they're using their influence in politics to keep your insurance rates as high as they can. You think they want to insure you? <clears throat> think they care about your health? And finally, you're not into politics. Your landlord is into politics. Your landlord is going to try to do everything he can and use his political influence to raise your rent and keep it as high as he can. We just had a a campaign in Pacifica, a very mild kind of uh, rent uh, limitation. And the owners screamed like bloody murder and defeated it. They want to be able to charge you as much as they can. So check it out. You're just not that into politics. Maybe it's time to get interested in politics.
Okay, yeah, Labor and Love Show coming at you from Mutiny Radio. And I want to say a few things about Mutiny Radio as we get started here. Mutiny Radio is a space at 2781 21st Street, which houses the this show, for example, and 44 other shows. MutinyRadio.fm. Okay, we've got a little bit of everything and a lot of some. A lot of comedy here. Okay, a lot of of DJs just sitting back and playing music they love and talking about the things that are important to them. Come on down to Mutiny Radio. It's also a performance space. Every week there are comedy shows here where you can bring your own act your own stand-up. Ever dream of doing stand-up? This is the place to do it. Come on down to Mutiny Radio. Comedy Playhouse. Comedy Workshops where you can come and tell your jokes and get an honest evaluation of how you did the good things first and then criticism. This is where entertainers come from. This is how things develop in comedy and in stand-up. This is where you can sharpen your chops. It's also a space you can rent for $100. You can rent this space for two hours. Have your own event. MutinyRadio.fm Check it out. 2781 21st Street, San Francisco, in El Mero Mero, the heart of the Mission District, El Mero Corazón. Okay, well, let's see. We started out with uh, a set there. We had Santana, everything's coming our way, and that's how it's going to be this 2019. Everything's coming our way. The carrot top is wobbling. He's besieged. Everything's turning against him. His, his people that he, that he appoints are being thrown in jail. The Mueller investigation is getting ever closer to what? Well, we're going to find out. It's something that carrot top doesn't want exposed. Well, we'll find out what it is. In the meantime, the word is organize, organize, organize. That's how the Democrats swept the 2018 House elections, governorships, even a couple of Senate seats. Organize, organize, organize. The issues are clear. It's never been this clear that the United States is a fascist country. Anyway, let's uh, look at some of these stories that I'd mentioned. How about Jerry Brown? As uh, John Nichols, um, political writer at Nichols Uprising, I guess this is Twitter feed. Jerry Brown retires as the most successful governor in modern U.S. history. 
When he was elected in 2010, California had a $27 billion deficit. Thank you, Arnold. And was considered ungovernable. Now it has $16 billion in reserves and is booing. What did Brown do that was right? He taxed the rich. He taxed the rich. I'll say it again. He taxed the rich. Ocasio-Cortez, a new congresswoman from New York, has proposed a 70% rate for top uh, earners. People making over a certain amount of money would be taxed at 70%. Not all their income. They're not paying. That's the top tax rate. As you move up the tax schedule, you get taxed at different rates. She's proposing a 70% tax. Well, it used to be 90%. Under Reagan, it was 70%. Now it's 39%. After the work of the neocons. How about some food stamp myths? Republicans just love to cut food stamps. And the myth is that people who get SNAP don't work. Well, ever since uh, that great Democrat, Bill Clinton, changed the rules, people who get food stamps now are often required to work. We can't give. Why can't we do this? America cannot give benefits like food. America cannot feed its people without going through some horrible thing. They have to deserve it or something. We can, however, turn around and give billions of dollars to other places, countries that will do our bidding and with whom we agree. I'm talking about the state of Israel. We can kowtow to Saudi Arabia. They send somebody to Some guy raises his voice a little and the prince sends somebody to kill him and cut him up. Those are our allies now, but we can't give... It just bothers those conservatives. Somebody's getting something for free. Little kids are eating. As the great George Lakoff said, don't think about a starving child. Children are going to bed hungry here in the United States. But it's never posed that way. It's, oh, those cheats. Those people are getting something for nothing. We got to work for that. All right. And the children, so we don't, as Lakoff says, don't think about it. And of course, what he's saying is be obsessed with it. Tell your friends who talk about lazy, indigent people getting things for free. Tell them that. Oh, well, the children are starving, but don't think about it. Snap is a drain on taxpayers is another myth. But every dollar in Snap benefits generates a dollar seventy-three in economic activity. <laughs> This is the great 
the great uh, paradox, right? People with full stomachs, people who have enough to eat and a little extra money, spend the money. And that fuels the economy. That's basic market capitalism. SNAP is rife with fraud and abuse, some people say. SNAP has a fraud rate less than 3%, the lowest of any public benefit program. And of course, the immigrant argument. SNAP benefits go to undocumented immigrants. Undocumented immigrants have never been eligible for SNAP. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Martin Luther King, uh, one of his last sermons was entitled, Will America Go to Hell? America's walking along the road, and there's the starving child right in our way. What do we do? Well, if you're a neocon, you say that that kid is there, and it's his own fault. And it has nothing to do with you. Is that who we are? Okay. This is the B, and we started out to... here with my uh, technology. All right, here we go.
Okay, uh, Loretta Lynn, the coal miner's daughter. Let's see what we can add on here. This is the B, and um, we're running through some labor songs. And uh, let's see, here's one for some fun. This one I like.
Okay, that's it. Interspersed with our uh, our talk. Tracy Chapman finished it off with, tell it like it is. Say it, say it, say it. <clears throat> the people who are running our country don't tell it like it is. They tell it the way they want you to believe it. They tell you what you want to hear. Before that, for no particular reason at all, Kansas City by Wilbert Harrison, one of my all-time favorite rhythm and blues hits. And finally, Loretta Lynn, before that, proud to be a coal miner's daughter. Beautiful song because it it gives you a look into the life of working people. And this is not just coal miners' daughters. This is working people all over the world in every age and country. They're broke, but they're working. They're trapped. They can't quit their work because that's how they survive in this system. You're supposed to survive by working. What is that? Where did that come from? Okay, that's part of the intellectual construct called capitalism. Some people make money off your work, but you struggle just to survive. Proud to be a coal miner's daughter by Loretta Lynn. Let's move on here for some more off the labor beat. I'm looking at a uh, probably a tweet um, put up by Antonio Castillo, and it's a one of the regular political uh, campaign signs on someone's lawn, and it says, ¿Cómo vas a votar este año? How are you going to vote this year? And there are two boxes. There's a green background and a box that says, I mean, a blue background that says Democrat, with a box you can check. And the red box says pendejo. <laughs> So you can either vote Democrat or vote Pendejo, and Pendejo is a stupid ass, a dummy. Very well, you know, a genius for putting things <laughs> with minimal words. This is in, in the common dreams. Common dreams. Dot org. Let's see if we can get this article up. Pouring salt into the wound. Amid shutdown, workers are going without pay. Hello. Trump signs executive order freezing pay of nearly 2 million federal workers. Now, what is that? 2 million federal workers. We're scheduled to get a small raise between 2 and 3% to keep track with inflation. 
two million dollar, two million workers. See, they say two million federal workers. No, no. Two million workers. It is shocking that federal employees are taking yet another financial hit. They've been furloughed and or laid off. As if missed paychecks and working without pay were not enough. Now they've been told they don't even deserve a modest pay raise. This is Mr. Trump. Okay, let's look at it as if we didn't know all the details. Okay, if I tell you, oh, there's a big government and there are two million uh, federal workers, two million workers, and their pay was just limited. They didn't get an increase, a yearly increase, as they were told they would. Mr. Trump is saving money on their salary. With hundreds of thousands of federal employees currently furloughed or working without pay due to the ongoing government shutdown, President Donald Trump delivered another blow to struggling workers on Friday by signing an executive order that will freeze the pay of around 2 million public employees in 2019. So if you strip away, strip away the details and abstract the situation. Two million workers are being denied raises. 800,000 workers have been laid off or asked to work without pay. Amazing. This is the U.S. of A. Okay. Furlough 400,000 federal workers. Require another 400,000 to work without pay. Freeze pay for entire federal civilian workforce. Justify pay freeze on our nation's fiscal situation, which is caused by the massive tax cuts for the rich. Lie to the troops about the military pay raise. Excellent. That's from Chris Liu. All right. Pouring salt into the wounds. Here's our, uh, here's our direct action. I want to play this every week. I'm sorry that people get tired of it. This is our direct action wrap. Now, what's happening is the workers at a factory are walking off the job. Two of their leaders were fired, and in protest, they just threw down their tools and they're walking off their job. Here we go. Fucked up. This guy's watching. Look at him. They sent a couple of them home. They all packed their shit up and shut this motherfucker down. Nigga, who y'all think y'all playing with? Mexico, man, this is what black people need to be on, man. I swear to God, I love this shit. They are packing they shit up and shutting this motherfucker. Huh? Uh, on my mama. All that shit. <laughs> they are not bullshitting. 
They packed up. Yeah, I see. It's over. Them motherfuckers now packed up and dipped. They thought they was going to play with these amigos. And they said, oh, yeah, we rise together, homie. And they leaving. And they not bullshitting. Take this in, man. Look at this, man. They shut this big motherfucker down today, man. We all going home, man. The SAs. Look, ain't no grinding, cutting, welding. This motherfucker dead ass quiet. The Mexicans shut this motherfucker down, nigga. Said, fuck you, bitch. And really, and really, see, this is what I'm talking about, baby. I swear to God, they got me geeked up. Oh, my Malcolm back shit. Oh, my mama, nigga. Fuck the bullshit, nigga. Look at this. They shut this bitch down. They pissed them off, nigga. They said, fuck you, we out. We not working no more today. Kiss my ass, nigga. I'll let y'all tomorrow. Oh, my mama. That's great. Look. Ain't nobody here. We're just cleaning up. We're going home. It's over. I'm right with the essays, nigga. Fuck it. Go to the crib. Go to the, go to the casa. Hasta la luego, man. Muy bien. You swear to God. Okay. That was an as yet unnamed uh, bystander. Maybe one of the workers totally amazed, totally blown away at this demonstration of solidarity by the Mexican workers. Going to have to find out where and when that situation was, what ended. But what a wonderful uh, commentary the guy gives. My breakfast receipt, <clears throat> it says, and it's a normal receipt for French toast, hash and eggs, mushroom omelet. Some people sat down, and when they got their receipt, register receipt, it said, immigrants make America great. They also cooked your food and served you today. Thank you. Come again. Here, here. Here, here. The invisible people. We're doing all this work so you can go ahead and do your thing. Hey, you can go ahead and be who you are, but you don't do it alone. This is when we talk about people who say, oh, well, individualism. You got to do it yourself. You know, no one will help you. Every step of the way in your life, people are working so you can eat and live and work and get rid of whatever you're trying to do. Every step of the way, people are supporting you with their labor and they're supporting you with their low wages. The less they get paid, the less your pancakes cost. The less they get paid, the less your food costs. And on and on. This is about Donald Trump's labor secretary, a guy named uh, Alex Acosta, I believe. I labeled it super sleaze. Uh, and the headline on Democracy Now! How Trump's labor secretary cut a deal 
her multimillionaire and serial sex abuser, Jeffrey Epstein. Let's listen to this for... is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. One cabinet member after another has been forced to leave the Trump administration over corruption and other issues, uh, leaving Trump's cabinet at its most unstable since he's assumed office two years ago. The Environmental Protection Agency, the Departments of Justice, and the— this is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. One cabinet member after another has been forced to leave the Trump administration over corruption and other issues, uh, leaving Trump's cabinet at its most unstable since he's assumed office two years ago. The Environmental Protection Agency, the Departments of Justice and the Interior um, are all being headed by acting officials. We turn now to look at whether Trump's labor secretary, Alex Acosta, will be the next Trump cabinet member to go. As U.S. prosecutor in Florida, Acosta cut what's been described as one of the most lenient deals for a serial child sex offender in history. Multimillionaire hedge fund manager Jeffrey Epstein, friend to Bill Clinton, Donald Trump and others, has been accused of molesting and trafficking hundreds of underage girls in Florida, but served just 13 months in a Florida county jail. Fifteen Congress members have called for a probe into Trump's labor secretary. The Miami Herald recently published a series of articles exposing Epstein's crimes and the high-powered people who protected him. In the wake of the investigation, Epstein settled a defamation lawsuit against the lawyer of some of his accusers, avoiding testimonies from survivors who were expected to take the stand. A separate case to overturn the original 2008 play deal is still pending. For more, we're joined by Julie Brown. Longtime investigative reporter at the Miami Herald, past winner of the George Polk Award, Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Center Award. Her series exposing multimillionaire Jeffrey Epstein's crimes is headlined Perversion of Justice. Julie, welcome to Democracy Now! Um, this investigation is epic. Explain why you focused on Jeffrey Epstein, how you learned about his story, and give us the background. Well, I had covered a number of stories about the Florida prison system, and I had I knew that sex trafficking was a, a big problem here in Florida. And every time, quite frankly, I started to do a story about sex trafficking and do some homework on it, um, Mr. Epstein's name kept coming up. And the more that I read about it, the more I thought, I, I you know, this is something that, that I don't understand. I'm sure a lot of people don't understand how, in a state that is has a high uh, rate of sex trafficking. How does someone who has trafficked all these girls, these were young high school, middle school girls, um, over quite a, a long period of time, how does someone like that um, get away with, with it when, at the time that this happened, um, Alex Acosta, who was the U.S. attorney in Miami, was going headstrong into prosecuting uh, people who were purveyors of child pornography, um, sending them to prison for prison for decades. And here is a man who had trafficked a number—some estimates are as many as hundreds of girls—and uh, he gets away with just serving a 13-month jail term, really in a very cozy area of the, of the county jail, where he was allowed to leave um, most of the day and on work release. Now, explain so who— So I essentially decided— 
Explain who Jeffrey Epstein is. Talk about his rise uh, to power and who his associates are. We're leading right up to the president of the United—two presidents of the United States, from Donald Trump to Bill Clinton. Well, it, it, the way that he uh, obtained his money has always been a mystery. It, it, it's almost as though no one has ever examined how he got his money. Um, it's, it, it's surprising that the federal authorities didn't look into that, because he seemed to have just a never-ending cash flow. He was able to hire uh, some of the t biggest and uh, most costly lawyers in America to defend him. He was a New York and City school teacher. He, oh, he was, he, but he never graduated from college. Very, very smart. He was uh, into physics and mathematics and, and um, biology, and he worked for Bear Stearns. And then he managed to ingratiate himself with some very wealthy, powerful people um, and manage their money. And as a result of managing a lot of uh, famous people and, and wealthy people's money, he himself made a lot of money. And it, as I said, it's really a mystery is exactly how much money he has and, and where it came from. But he has, it seems like, never-ending source of, source of cash. And he was able to really hire the best defense that his money could buy. I want to go to a video um, that accompanies your piece, uh, this Miami Herald expose, where we hear the voices of the young women, now older, describing what happened to them. We were little girls. I was 16. I was 16. I started going to him when I was like 14, 15, 14 turning 15. If you think yes, at 14, $200, hey. that's a lot of money at 14 I'm sorry? years old. I mean, that's a lot of money now. She's like, oh, you know, do you need to make any extra money? I'm like, yeah. She's like, okay, I can give you know, like $200. This is older guy in Palm Beach. He gets a lot of massages from girls. You know, that was really They were recruited by someone who was adept at finding girls that would be willing to, you know, go to a house for a few hundred dollars. And as it started out, you know, give a man a back rub, but many cases it turned into something uh, far worse than that, uh, elevated to a crime, and a serious crime, in some cases sexual batteries. My life would have been different if I would have never went to Jeffrey Epstein's house. It was just a dark turning point in my life. On June 30th, 2008, Jeffrey Epstein, a Palm Beach multimillionaire hedge fund manager, received what might have been the most lenient plea deal for a serial sex offender in U.S. history. The Miami Herald identified over 60 of his victims, just young middle and high school girls at the time of the abuse. More than a decade later, several of them are talking for the first time about how they were molested by Epstein and believe they were betrayed by the very prosecutors who were supposed to hold Epstein accountable. They came from fairly disadvantaged backgrounds. There was some dysfunction in their families. The lure of a lot of money was more than they were able to resist. I went from um, an abusive situation to being a runaway to living in foster homes to just already being hardened by life on the streets. The other girls that I personally know of that went, were coming from trailer parks that were having gun shootings, drugs. My mother was on drugs at the time, 
and she couldn't provide for me and I was pretty much homeless. One child would be lured over, would be paid substantial sums of money, would be offered the further inducement of being paid a bounty for anybody else that she was able to bring to Epstein. A network developed where many young girls in the same kinds of circumstance wound up being victimized. Three of us slid into the back seat of the cab and we drove and I remember just driving down Okeechobee Boulevard and thinking how I had never been on Palm Beach Island before in my whole entire life that I had lived in West Palm Beach. By the time I was 16, I brought him up to 75 girls, all the ages of you know, 14, 15, 16, people going from eighth grade to ninth grade at just um, school parties is where I'd recruit him from. All Jeffrey cared about was go find me more girls. His appetite was insatiable. He, he couldn't stop. He wanted new, fresh, young faces every single day. The sheer volume of girls, uh, the frequency, sometimes several or many in the same day, the age of the girls. In some cases, there were victims that didn't know each other, had never met each other, but they had a, basically the same story. I remember there was a staircase, and it was like kind of like a spiral almost. And she brings us up the stairs and it was like spiral stairs. He walked into his bedroom, around his bed, to almost a, like a very little hall and then it was another door. And that's where everything would happen, was in his bathroom. He would have a dresser and it was filled with like, the first drawer was lotion and then like the third drawer down was like sex toys. So you, we would take the massage table out and set it up in the middle of the room. And then he came in with his white towel on around him. And then he just laid down in his towel on his stomach and he was just talking to people on the phone. When he flipped, flipped over, that's when he said, okay, you can go ahead and take off your shirt and pants, but you can stay in your underwear. He would want us to stand next to him and he would masturbate while he stared at us, touched us. To pull his nipples and to play with them in between his fingers and also while I was playing with his nipples, he kept doing that stuff to me. But he was very aggressive like when he would do it. And then he tried to put his finger in my underwear and I like, jumped back and I went, I pulled back and I was like, whoa. <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I won't do that, I won't do that. And then he went back to doing that. He's like, just on the outside and I'm like, oh my God. It ended with sexual abuse and intercourse. Story of Jeffrey Epstein and <clears throat> We could go on and on and on. The point here is Donald Trump's Secretary of Labor, Alex Acosta, was the quote-unquote prosecutor in this case. Epstein ended up with the lightest sentence ever given at to a, a child molester. Uh, he was a super pimp is what he is. And uh, so listen to that. That's uh, Amy Goodman and uh, Democracy Now. Jeffrey Epstein, the case of Jeffrey Epstein. The uh, Acosta, so Acosta now is uh, under indictment or under uh, examination 
by the Congress. Uh, he's been called before the Congress. We'll see what happens to him. <laughs> Mr. Trump was going to drain the swamp, huh? This is for Jeffrey Epstein and the girls that he exposed, the girls whose labor... Al hombre. 
listen to Jack Kerouac here, huh? About Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker looked like Buddha. Charlie Parker, who recently died laughing at a juggler on TV, after weeks of strain and sickness, was called the perfect musician. And his expression on his face was as calm, beautiful, and profound as the image of the Buddha represented in the East. The lidded eyes the expression that says, all is well. This was what Charlie Parker said when he played, all is well. He had the feeling of early in the morning, like a hermit's joy, or like the perfect cry of some wild gang at a jam session, wail, whop. Charlie burst his lungs to reach the speed of what the speedsters wanted, and what they wanted was his eternal slowdown. A great musician and a great creator of forms that ultimately find expression in mores and what have you. Musically as important as Beethoven, yet not regarded as such at all. A genteel conductor of string orchestras in front of which he stood proud and calm, like a leader of music in the great historic world night, and wailed his little saxophone, the alto, with piercing clear lament, in perfect tune and shining harmony, toot, as listeners reacted without showing it, and began talking, and soon the whole joint is rocking and talking, and everybody talking, Charlie Parker, whistling them on to the brink of eternity with his Irish St. Patrick patoodle stick. And like the holy miss, we blop and we plop in the waters of slaughter and white meat and die one after one in time. And how sweet a story it is when you hear Charlie Parker tell it, either on records or at sessions or at official bits and clubs, shots in the arm for the wallet, Gleefully, he whistled the perfect horn. Anyhow, it made no difference. Charlie Parker, forgive me. Forgive me for not answering your eyes. For not having made an indication of that which you can devise. Charlie Parker, pray for me. Pray for me and everybody. In the nirvanas of your brain where you hide indulgent and huge no longer charlie parker with a secret unsayable name that carries with it merit not to be measured from here to up down east or west charlie parker lay the bane off me and everybody That was uh, 
Jack Kerouac with uh, Steve Allen playing piano in the background. And the subject was uh, Charlie Parker. Let's listen to Charlie Parker now. And that was Charlie Parker, and uh, a combo. I don't know who was playing there that with him. With the uh, swing era ballad, All the Things You Are, made a hit by Helen Forrest. Charlie Parker, All the Things You Are. This year, we're going to play some more jazz. We're going to play uh, classical jazz and uh, hopefully some modern jazz. Anyone who's got suggestions for music, 
songs that we play, music of social significance, uh, email me or put it on the uh, message board at mutinyradio.fm. This is the B, and we're going on with our labor news. want to mention another one. These are like pins. These are like posts. Shame at our own dependence on the underpaid labor of others. I mentioned this earlier, how people who are making low wages make our commodities cheaper for us. When someone works for less pay than she can live on, when she goes hungry so that you can eat more cheaply and conveniently, then she's made a great sacrifice for you. The working poor are the major philanthropists of our society. And that's a woman named Barbara Ehrenreich. And a book which... You want to read something about working. Barbara Reich was a well-to-do, a, a writer, a leftist, um, married to a labor leader who decided to go underground. In other words, become a worker, a low-wage worker, and she did. She, she worked as a low-wage worker and wrote this book, Nickel and Dime, about how we're being subsidized by uh, low-wage workers. And what about Janice? Okay, what has Janice had, you know, done to the labor movement so far? It's, it's going to have bad effects long-term unless um, union people can get together and figure something out, uh, bring suit about uh, free speech. For the union. This is just an excuse to muzzle the union. That's all these things are. Okay? I mean, if we would go to federal workers, right? Federal workers are not supposed to unionize either. Certain things that they can then um, argue for and bargain for are excluded. Months after the Supreme Court's June 18th Janice versus AFSCME decision, public sector unions are not teetering on the brink of collapse, as their detractors may have hoped. Uh, hoped. The consensus is that good preparations soften the initial blow. Anyone writing our obituary is going to be sorely disappointed. By the way, this is in these times. January 3rd, 2019. We don't believe we are going to be hurt nearly as badly as people thought by Janus. U.S. labor law requires unions to represent everyone in a bargaining unit, whether or not they opt to be official dues-paying union members. Prior to Janus, most states required those who opted out to pay for that revenue pay for that representation through fair share, fair share fees. It's added a percentage of dues. 
In one fell swoop, Janus eliminated fair share fees for public sector unions nationwide, allowing non-members to get all the benefits of the union without paying. So that's what it is. It's a free ride. What unions did was talk to their base, strengthen their base, and uh, have campaigns to let workers understand, you know, what the union does for them. Okay. So Janice didn't hurt nearly as bad, but this is something, I mean... Union leaders, union activists, union members have to be proactive. You need to go out and win more people and don't just don't just organize them, you know, so they're on some list you have. Unionize them. Unionize them. Okay, the axe fell, wasn't that bad. U.S. Appeals Court nixes labor agency Obama-era joint employment test. Now, this is something that's very important because under the franchise system, for a long time, people at the top of a franchise, say a McDonald's, were able to disassociate themselves from the labor practices of the franchise owners. In other words, they say, okay, we're McDonald's, you're a McDonald's franchise, but uh, we have nothing to do with how you treat workers. All we want is profit from you. All we want is money from you. So by paying that, that money, what, what did different franchise owners have to do? Well, they had to squeeze their workers. So they squeeze their workers or they or they overload workers or they submit workers to bad job conditions. And the parent company, McDonald's, for example, can say, well, we have nothing to do with that. Those aren't our policies. The franchise owner has his own situation. Well, under Obama, the the, uh, National Labor Relations Board said, "Uh uh-uh, that's not true. You're the parent company. You're being paid money. You're making money off this. No, you have to be involved and you have to be responsible for that labor situation. Well, now... The Trump era in LRB uh, has removed that. So now you can get away with just being uh, a franchise owner and telling everybody uh, you don't know anything about the uh, labor situation and you're not responsible for it. And one more, here's labor notes. How Four Roses bourbon strikers fought off two-tier. Four Roses bourbon. Probably people out there are familiar with that. Workers at the Four Roses bourbon distillery and bottling plant 
chose their moment as well. Just as their industry was preparing to welcome thousands of visitors for September's Kentucky Bourbon Festival, they walked out on strike in defense of workers they hadn't even met yet. There's a family company, said Matt Stone, a leader in food and commercial workers, local 10D. Grandfathers, fathers, sons all work here for generations. And my family may be working here one day. We want to take care of the next guy. With few resources at their disposal, these 50 workers in rural Kentucky stared down the Japanese conglomerate Kim Br- Kin Brewer. Kirin Brewery, which owns Four Roses and One. See, the American owners of these companies have long since cashed in and sold out, in some cases, to foreign countries. Where's the hue and cry about that? Why does a Japanese country company own Four Roses? How did that happen? Might be good, might be bad, but how did it happen? The dispute was over two-tier contract proposal that would have given worse benefits to new hires. One fact Four Roses hadn't counted on was that many of its employees had friends who worked at the nearby Jim Beam distillery. Two years ago, Jim Beam workers struck over a similar issue and forced their employer to back off. Four Roses workers spent nearly two weeks walking the picket lines near the distillery in Lawrenceburg and outside the bottling and warehouse faculty in Cox's Creek. Tennessee, maybe? I think we're talking about Tennessee. The workers are located, represented by UFCW locals 10D and 23D and the National Conference of Firemen and Oilers, SEIU. When they returned to the bargaining table with the assistance of a federal mediator, they worked in, within hours, they had a tentative agreement. And in the words of local 10D President Jeff Royalty, there is no two-tier in Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Precisely what caused the company to back down remains somewhat of a mystery even to the workers involved. What is clear is that their public campaign direct outreach to would-be customers, support from the local community, solidarity from other unions, and outreach to the media helped turn the tide. It's on Labor Notes. Okay. Now, what's, this is from Labor Start, and this is... Just lost it. This is from Labor Start, and it's uh, about the people at the airport, those people who uh, stop you and pass the sensor over you and uh, tell you what to take on and put off, <laughs> take off and put on at the airport, <clears throat> the TSA agents. Two weeks into the shutdown, Mr. Trump is going around bragging how he's getting all this 
all this uh, support. People are calling him, and uh, federal workers are calling him and telling him that uh, they want him to hold tough. They don't mind going without money. He's not going without money. <laughs> and they don't mind going without money. Donald Trump recently suggested that he has the upper hand in government shutdown fight because most of the people not getting paid are Democrats. In other words, these are people who are against his wall. And now they're the ones who aren't getting paid, so he's kind of happy to withhold pay from them, huh? By this, the president meant that his party depends less on the support of federal workers than Chuck Schumer's does, and that Democrats will therefore have a harder time standing their ground during a prolonged shutdown than he will. Beyond the moral odiousness of this position, there was one strategic flaw in Trump's reasoning. Precisely because they're aligned with the Democratic Party, public sector unions are likely to be more willing to engage in work stoppages under a GOP president than might be under a pro-labor one. Two weeks into the shutdown, formal labor militancy, formal labor militancy has yet to materialize. But an informal pseudo-strike is already taking shape. Transportation Security Administration agents are legally obligated to work through the shutdown, even though their pay has been frozen. For TSA agents who survive paycheck to paycheck, that just stopped being workable. As the shutdown approaches in its third week, hundreds of agents have begun calling in sick, reported by CNN. So, Four Roses, played some Charlie Parker, The Axe Fell, that's the labor beat. Let's have one more, as Trump holds firm on shutdown, he never mentions one group, federal employees. He has talked about the need for protection along the country's southern border. He said he's willing to keep the government shut down indefinitely to ensure the funding of the wall, he says, will provide that protection. And he has complained about spending the holidays alone in the White House with no one around with whom he can negotiate. One thing President Trump has not talked about publicly during 13 days of partial government shutdown is the 800,000, 800,000, everybody, federal workers who are not being paid because of it. Mr. Trump's apparent indifference to the TSA agents, correctional officers, science, scientists, and other federal employees caught in the crosshairs of a political standoff presents a remarkable contrast with how other presidents have made a point of trying to demonstrate their empathy during other shutdowns. 
In 2013, for instance, President Barack Obama opened an op wrote an open letter to the workers affected when the government was closed. None of this is fair to you, he wrote, adding, you and your families remain at the front of my mind. Even Ronald Reagan acknowledged during the 1981 shutdown that temporary hardship it caused for government workers. Mr. Trump has not even publicly recognized that. And what do we expect? What do we expect? So let's see. Uh, let's let's play some music. And get my iTunes here. Okay, uh, let's see. We've got Perfect Indian Fire on. I'm looking for something. Uh, how about this one? We played this a lot before. First time in the new year, and it's a damn good one to remember. Linda Tillery and Cultural Heritage. Don't let nobody...
signing off. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. You don't have a seat at the table where you work. That is the negotiating table. You're on the menu. Never, never let anyone into your heart who's not a friend of labor. When I say labor, I mean you. Hi, everybody. Remember, when I say labor, I mean you, where the labor meets the road. Hi, everybody. Vita. Clifton House. All of you who work for a living, have a good week and good work. This is the B signing off. See you next week. of swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutinyradio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Asiento, take a seat at Asiento on 21st and Bryant. Meet friends for a drink, have delicious tapas and a relaxed community atmosphere. Asiento, honestly, is a wonderful place. They have incredible bartenders and board games all over the walls. Trivia on Mondays, Taco Tuesdays, First Wednesday, live jazz, live DJs Thursday, parties. The food is darn good. Special happy hour prices all night long with your Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival ticket March 1st through 5th. Check out the schedule at www.asientosf.com. Come take a seat. I had a date there and it did not go well. But it wasn't the fault of the place. They're very nice. Asiento. a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. 
Counteroffer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counteroffer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counteroffer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counteroffer, baby. Everybody should listen to Mutiny Radio at mutinyradio.fm. It's a great place to listen to crazy things. Subliminal SF Visual and Auditory Mind Control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. Welcome, Bender's Bar and Grill, located at 806 South Van Ness in the Mission District of San Francisco. Your favorite bar with awesome bartenders, rotating local art, and a killer back patio. It's a great place to hang out and play one of their two pool tables or old school pinball machine with a tasty adult beverage. Live music every Saturday for only $5, Bender's brings you face-melting metal and rock and roll. The last Friday of the month, punk rock and schlock delivers super fun karaoke with Aileen. Come on, what's not to like? They even have counter-offer inside, frying up the tots with sexy hot burgers for your face. Open every day at 2 p.m. Their happy hour goes till 7 p.m. Benders is proud to be a sponsor of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, because they're an awesome community asset to the dirtbags who keep art alive in the mission. Benders Bar and Grill. Hi, welcome to My Limited View. I am your host, Sergio Novoa. And I'm your co-host, Vanessa Wilkins. Join us every Tuesday from 12 to 2 at mutinyradio.fm as we share stories, our personal stories. And struggles and challenges. And we'll also have guests come in and share their stories. And hopefully through all this, we can expand our view. Or your view. Yes, and there'll be plenty of dick jokes, so don't worry. It's not always going to be heavy. Yeah, I might even share black hair tips. Black hair tips, don't. <laughs> know anything about it sorry all on my limited view yes every tuesday from 12 to 2 uh oh you can if you can also find us on apple Podcasts. oh yeah and google play and stitcher itunes oh you already said that tune in radio uh stitcher you said that spotify oh my god there's just so many and overcast um, yes, you can also find us on social media, M as in Mary, L as in Larry, P as in Peter, podcast, MOV podcast is our handle. Until next time, I hope you're enjoying your view. Yes. Bye. Bye. That kind of sucked balls. Ugh. 
Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for near five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. (laughs) Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Oh, shit. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at Mutant Radio. Yeah. Mutant Radio listener, it's that time of year again. March 1st through 5th, it's time for the 4th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival. Over 40 comics, 25 shows. Flat Black Plastic, MutinyRadio.fm.
This is cassette number seven. We followed the tracks through sleepy suburban neighborhoods, grumpy with each other for the first time since we met again. Lonnie shot his knife along the way. When he finally had a full pocket full of cigarette butts, I had to sit and wait while he rolled up in one of his beautiful cigarettes. Right on, right on. Welcome, everybody. Give it up for yourselves for making it here. Come on now. Come on. Come on. Uh, this show is Jenner Davis, Davis's stand-up tragedy. And what this show is about is the art that you see around you. So give it up for all this beautiful, crazy stuff. You know, I'm not going to take too much away from it all because all the comics that are coming up here tonight are going to speak about the art. But... I'm going to just profile this person like an FBI agent and just lock him up now. I'm serious, man. Like, I, I own bunnies. You see this bunny up here? It's a bunny. And then it's, no, it's not. That's scary. That's like the worst superpowers. Just only have, like, like, vision to see through bunnies. It would scare everybody. It would scare you. And then, I think that's a burden. You guys think it's a burden? Part, well, yes, thank you for pointing out the obvious. I don't see wings or a body and feet. All right, so it's a beak. It's a beak. It's about the struggle. But this one really caught my face right here. That's like an ex-girlfriend right there. <laughs> right there. Her dad owns a landscaping company. That's why they have a machete. Wow. Not because it looks like Dia de los Muertos or anything. I'm just saying. There's some landscaping going on there. And the snake in the hair. Man, that's Medusa stuff, right? Do I get the is that a god or an e evil demon? One of those things? All right, fuck you guys. This is great. <laughs> this ain't the clean show, man. This is the Jenner Davis's stand-up tragedy, everybody. Give it up for yourselves. Come on. Come on. I like I myself like this crazy kind of art that's like off the wall. And my first time coming here, I got to be introduced to the art of the bathroom. It's its own fucking piece in there. All right, that's your DUI test. If you can stand and not fall over while pissing, you're fucking cool. All right, disco lights are awesome in some places. That's not one of them. It's not. It's like it's like reality in there, and you come out here and you feel safer. And it's supposed to be the other way around. I like that we're in San Francisco, so clearly anyone can use that bathroom, whatever the fuck you identify with. There's not even a sign on it. That's how progressive that bathroom is, right? Right? I, I think we need to stop labeling bathrooms at all, except for number one and number two. I don't care what's going on. No, seriously, my wife's like, we need to do, redo some stuff to our house. I was like, what? So we need another bathroom. Why? So you can shit in there. <laughs> and that's when I had this epiphany. No, no one wants to be around anyone shitting anyway. So... Just put us all in one area. We'll all be shamed together. We'll all get out and be like, Indian food. <laughs> Indian food. Hey, bro. Like, you know, like when you snore and people constantly tell you, you'll sleep apnea and you get a fucking machine. <laughs> you know, could you imagine shit next to someone? Like, bro, you need to add fiber to that diet. <laughs> like, people just nosy. And this is like, this is a medical condition, people. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. Hey, we have a lot of great comics tonight. Everybody give it up. 
Your next comic, he came here, graced us with his appearance all the way from New York. Everybody, please give it up for Mr. Tommy McGuire. All right, thank you very much. All right, this is a uh, tragedy-themed show. And uh, I don't have any jokes about tragedy, but just a good 11 minutes of you guys withstanding such a thing. Um, no, I do. I, uh, I, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a, a white guy from the suburbs. Like, tragedy didn't really hit me too, too hard. You know, I kind of had to leg up from the get-go. And then, um, I failed out of high school <laughs> and got that leg right back down. I, uh, here's a tragic uh, tale. I once, uh, I once got beat up on rollerblades <laughs> by a cop. And I'm not using rollerblades as like some metaphor for ecstasy or some slang, even though that would make sense since it's rollerblading and ecstasy are two things gay dudes love to do. But um, now I got beat up by a cop on rollerblades and uh, I think that's when I started overcompensating for everything in my life. Um, I uh, turned 37, so that's tragic to me. Can't grow sideburns yet. And you tell me there's a god? <laughs> Fuck out of here. I can't grow up. Be- anyway, I uh, turned 37, and, uh, you know, go- 30 years, you-, you learn a lot. You know, there's a lot of lessons to be had, and a lot of times you're surprised by them. Um, I'd say, like, the biggest shock I, uh, I-, I experienced growing up was um, going to my grandmother's funeral, and... Um, People were sad. <laughs> what? She ruined my mom. Are you kidding me? She was up. She was the first person to call me a fag. She told me, in quotes, you smoke like a faggot. I don't like using that word on stage or off stage, but that's a direct quote from that awful lady. Oh. Sorry, my family, it's just. Like, I'm killing it. <laughs> like, this right now is like one of the greatest things anyone in my family has ever done. <laughs> Look around. <laughs> the bar is set low. I, um, well, it's one of the tragic things I want to get. I got beat up by a cop on rollerblades. Oh, uh, this is a fun one. This, this happened here probably about, I don't know, uh, maybe six years ago or so. I was a, I was a bouncer over at Pops for a long time and a def- different couple bars and, you know, uh, I'm kind of dated in that scene, that dive bars and all this, and uh, I met this, this really wonderful girl, uh, younger than me, but not like super young, but just really cute and pretty, uh, really smart, and if by going by an antiquated um, system, she was like a solid five. But um, I fucked that joke up. Uh, she's as smart as she was pretty, and by going by antiquated standards, she was a solid five. Eh, we, can, we can cut that in post, right? All right, cut. Um, I met her, she was really cool and like super pretty, but she was a, like a new wave hippie, um, which is cool. She's from San Francisco. I expect that stuff, you know? Um, but she had, she had, uh, she carried around those crystals with her, you know, that fucking huge red flag and you can hold in your pocket. (laughs) And I didn't want to like, that's your belief system. That's your thing. That's cool. It doesn't hurt me that you believe in all this stuff and all those magical powers and all that. If it helps you. Cool. Um, she wants to put an $80 rock in my left hand. And she said, now close your eyes. Do 
you feel it? Oh, you're so lucky you're cute, man. Like, cause, no, I didn't feel anything. Like, it was just, okay, but it's fine. Uh, it was, anyways, it was a short relationship, maybe like three weeks, you know, and, um, you know, I guess it, it's called ghosting now. We just lost contact, and about uh, six weeks later, uh, I'm finishing a shift at Pops. I'm counting money, and I get a, I, she calls me on my phone, and I can't answer. I'm like, oh, Jen, why are you doing that? I shouldn't read your real name. Anyhow, uh, Mike. Whatever. Uh, I can't talk to you now. And then I get a text from her. I'm counting money. I'm trying to like focus on that. And um, the exact text text was, uh, "Hey, so I'm pregnant. Obvi gonna take care of it. Frowny face. <laughs> Not an emoji. Just frowny face. Now I don't know a lot about tact, but when you tell me we've made a person." And that we're going to take care of it? Leave the emojis out of it, please. <laughs> um, but I, and I'm not trying to virtual signal here, but uh, I did what I believe every uh, guy in that situation should do. I called her and I said, what do you need me to do? What can I do? How can I help or just be there? Like, what? okay, it's your decision. I'm, you know, we're in San Francisco. Everyone's pro-choice. All right. Uh, so she just said, I don't know, man. Just, uh, you know, let's talk. We'll hang out. And uh, I did that, spent some time with her, and uh, so she's, she's going the, the pill route, which is, a, I mean, it's all brutal, but it's like a really brutal uh, uh, route to go. And uh, the day before, she's like, all right, well, just stay with me the night. Uh, we're going to stay at my parents' house. They're not going to be there. Don't worry. Uh, just stay the night. Um, you know, sex is out of the question. And uh, just, you know, just be around. Like, all right, I'll be a good dude. I want to be a, a, a solid person, a decent person. Uh, her... Her parents' uh, apartment is also called uh, the Four Seasons. They rent an apartment at the Four Seasons year-round in San Francisco. When they're not staying at the Plaza Hotel, the Home Alone 2 fucking goddamn hotel in New York, when they're not spending time in their property in Miami. She was a trust fund kid, and this is how I found out. And I found out by terminating my anchor baby. <laughs> I almost had a hookup into a ta different tax bracket, man. That's the tragedy. Like, she had to go through some shit, and God bless her. She's a trooper, and God bless her. Would have been six-year-old, but Jesus Christ, I could have changed my whole life, man. <laughs> I never pulled out ever again. Oh. I, uh, I, I said this in another set. This is a... Uh, Really an important uh, weekend for me, being here for Mutiny Comedy Fest. This is where I started. This is the, the stage used to be right there. I, I, I wandered in. I wanted to do comedy. And I saw uh, a Josh Halub uh, going up there doing his song and dance at an open mic. He was just kind of, you know, it was fine. But I was like, I'm funnier than that. And I came up, <laughs> you know, as you do when you're an idiot. Uh, I came up right on the spot. Like, it was literally, I think, right here. I came up with my very first joke I ever told on stage. Um, and it was a true story and all that, and um, there's a postscript to it now. So I, I want to, this is, this is my real tragedy, my real uh, existential crisis I've had. So my mom made a habit when I was living out here of, on my birthday, she would get me uh, edible bou bouquets. 